This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for April 14th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, we're now well into the rollout of vaccines in this country. Many states are opening up vaccine availability to anyone who wants it, and supplies are increasing to the point where it's far easier to get an appointment to be vaccinated than it was even a few weeks ago. Are we seeing any effect of this yet? I think we are, Steve. In areas with very high vaccination rates, you know, the best example, of course, is Israel. We are really seeing dramatic effects in lowering the number of cases, but we are seeing effects in the U.S. as well. Now, the coverage here is much less than in Israel, where 60% of the population has already received one dose, and pretty much every indicator is improving. The U.S. is a bit more complicated because our vaccination rate is lower. About a third of people have received a single dose. About a little less than a quarter have received two doses. And in the face of that, the number of cases is continuing to rise slightly overall. But the case numbers is probably not the right metric to gauge the effect of vaccination. Remember that case numbers reflect exposure, and a lot more people are being exposed right now and are out and active. And the fact that new variants are circulating, which appear to transmit more effectively. So those two factors are helping to drive an increased rate of disease. But there are other metrics that probably suggest that vaccines are working. Remember that the groups who have the highest rates of vaccination are largely those at high risk of disease. The elderly and people with immune system defects. And these are the people who are likely not out in public that much and probably not contributing much to the spread of disease. However, they do contribute very heavily to the severe disease, which we can measure through hospitalizations and deaths, because these high-risk individuals are overrepresented in those categories. Of these two numbers, deaths lag behind because people who are critically ill are often hospitalized for extended periods before they succumb. So hospitalizations are probably our most sensitive early indicator of the effect of vaccines. And there, the rate has been falling in the U.S. overall, although there are pockets where it's still rising. Here in Massachusetts, where the vaccination rates have been higher than in some states, the number of hospitalizations has fallen precipitously. Um, And in fact, the death rate and the number of new cases are dropping as well here, albeit more slowly than hospitalizations. So it's a little early to declare vaccination a huge success, but there are good indicators that it's working. I mean, Eric, as you allude to, this is such a complicated situation where the rollout of vaccines, I think, clearly has substantial benefits, particularly on severe illness. But as we know, transmission is impacted both by viral factors and human factors. And we've all continuing to monitor the emergence of viral variants and the potential meaning. But we also need to think about our behavior. And many across the nation, probably us included, are sharing in the frustration and fatigue that the last 15 months of house arrest has imparted. And we need to remember that as we open schools and open other activities where we interact, that also impacts transmissibility of the virus and subsequent associated illness. And we need to continue with our routine public health control measures while we are ramping up 
immunity through vaccination. And as we watch numbers go up in some areas and some communities, we need to redouble our efforts to try and decrease that transmission as we are ramping up vaccinations. We've talked a lot, Lindsay, about the importance of public health interventions beyond vaccination. And another way to think about them, and I think that it's very relevant for what you're saying, is the speed at which an intervention can take effect. Vaccination is a great way of producing long-term effects on transmission and disease, but it takes a long time. Of course, we don't have enough vaccine for everybody, but aside from that, it takes, depending on which vaccine is used, it takes really more than a month generally, certainly for the mRNA vaccines, more like a month and a half before people are fully protected. And there's a gradient risk during that time. So it's a slow intervention. You can take public health measures tomorrow and have an immediate effect on transmission. So it's important to remember that in places that are having large outbreaks, vaccination is not a rapid way out of the problem. So we've published two case series describing an unusual adverse event seen with one of these current vaccines. What did we learn there? Steve, the two case series we published are from two different European countries describing patients with similar syndromes. We've heard a good deal in news reports about thrombosis following vaccination with CHADOX-1, the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine from Oxford and AstraZeneca. According to regulators, it wasn't clear if this was happening at an increased rate in vaccine recipients. But now that we can see details of some of these cases, it's clear that they are very unusual. One report describes five patients, the other describes 11 patients, all of whom had a thrombotic thrombocytopenia with platelet counts that were low, generally below 50,000, and some being very much lower, and many different sites of thrombosis. But the striking thing is that there was an unusual involvement of cerebral sinuses. The majority of patients had cerebral sinus thrombosis. The cases ranged, but many of them were very severe. 11 of the 16 patients died of complications from the illness, and some remained critically ill. And along with the unusual illness, these patients had striking epidemiology. Almost all of them presented between one and two weeks after their first dose of the vaccine. And they were very young, ranging from 22 to 54, with most of them in their 30s. And most had no other risk factors for thrombotic syndromes. So I think, Eric, these observations point out that vaccine surveillance for side effects is working. And it shows the importance of having observant, astute clinicians who are able to identify patterns of illness that are out of bounds, that are unusual and unique, and then be able to determine how that might be related to a preceding event such as vaccination. I think this really speaks to having the global community monitoring interacting, communicating, to be able to identify these kinds of unusual events and then determine if they're real and if they're associated with the potential intervention of concern. So I find it very concerning, but also very encouraging that our system can work this way. I think the other thing that this points up, Lindsay, is how difficult that surveillance is. In this case, 
Blood clotting syndromes are unusual, but they're not extraordinarily rare. And if you immunize millions and millions of people, some are coincidentally going to have DVTs or PEs because those things happen. And they might well have happened before. I think what permitted this to be seen was the sinus thrombosis, which was unusual. And I think that when regulators first looked at cases, I strongly suspect they lumped all thrombotic conditions together. And in that, you couldn't see these small numbers because of the noise. The signal-to-noise ratio wasn't good. And there's no reason to expect this particular complication. But now that you see it, it really does produce a signal that really looks like a strong association. I mean, I, I agree, Eric. I think that things which are common are very hard to discern because of the noise issue. The uniqueness and severity of cavernous sinus thrombosis, splanchnic vein thrombosis, those are very rare events, particularly in young people. And that may have made it a little bit easier to aggregate cases to look for a pattern. But it's very hard to do quality surveillance for common things. What do we know about the pathogenesis of this illness? The pathogenesis is very unusual. All of these individuals had a syndrome that resembled heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, or HIT, though there was an important difference. HIT results from an antibody that binds to platelet factor 4, or PF4. Ordinarily, this binding has no effect, but in the presence of the polyanion heparin, which forms a scaffold for PF4 to bind to, the antibodies are brought into proximity, and these clustered antibodies bind to FC receptors on platelets and activate them, resulting in thrombosis and the consumption of platelets. So all of these patients had the anti-PF4 antibodies that are seen in HIT, but none of them received heparin at the time of presentation. So it seems likely that something else was acting as a scaffold for PF4 binding, but we don't know what that is. This is very unusual. There are only a tiny handful of cases of a HIT-like syndrome in the absence of heparin that have been previously reported. I mean, I think it's important to understand the mechanism. By understanding the mechanism, it increases our confidence that the observation may be correct. It also allows us to better understand who may be at risk and therefore decrease the potential of this type of side effect as well as determine if this is somehow intrinsic to the virus or the vaccine or some excipient in the vaccine delivery process. So the better we can understand what is going on, the better chance we have to mitigate, diminish, and potentially remove this risk. It's a very good point, Lindsay. There are two implications to this. One, of course, is for the individual patients and their therapy, and the other is, because the mechanism is so peculiar, it makes it easier to make the association. So it really helps us understand that there is very likely causality here. So now that we know something about cause, are there implications for therapy with this syndrome? There are. Many of these people were treated with heparin before the underlying pathogenesis was identified. Some improved and some worsened on heparin, but that's not unexpected. Heparin, particularly at low doses, would likely worsen the disease as it 
would offer a way to cluster the antibodies and cause even more platelet activation. Knowing what we know now, it seems likely that it's safer to treat with other antithrombotic agents, such as direct acting anticoagulants. I mean, it also raises the issue, given the mechanism of ways to block the FC part of the IgG. So there might be other avenues that may emerge that people will recommend as potential treatments. By understanding the mechanism, I look forward to seeing thoughtful uh, approaches to decreasing this complication. And I should point out that many of these patients did receive intravenous immunoglobulin. And that, as you said, might be another effective therapy as it blocks the FC receptors on platelets. And it did appear in this very small number of cases that perhaps it made a difference. So that's an additional therapeutic avenue. I mean, we need to be careful that we don't know how to treat this. However, through understanding the mechanism, these logical approaches have been applied and will be applied if needed, but hopefully will diminish the occurrence of these side effects through other public health interventions. So what does this mean for the Chadox-1 vaccine? That's a really good question. I mean, all vaccines and all drugs for that matter have associated rare side effects. This one is particularly severe as it's resulted in several deaths already. But it's important to keep a couple of things in mind. First, we can't tell from this case series how common this is. There have been a very large number of doses administered, and there still are a relatively small number of cases described, although there certainly are more that have appeared in the popular press. But we don't know the numbers yet, and we don't know the denominator. On one hand, it's certainly possible that these are occurring at a rate that's as low as one in a million. But that's complicated by a second factor, the fact that all the patients thus far have been young. While there's been a lot of vaccine given out, much of that's been in the elderly to protect that high-risk group from COVID-19. So the rate of this complication could be very much higher in young people as a number of total recipients is likely to be relatively small. So... As a consequence of that, several countries have decided to limit vaccination to older individuals to decrease the risk. I think it is going to be important to calculate the risk, however, because this vaccine, Chadox-1, has been the most likely vaccine to be broadly used worldwide. It's crucial that we get vaccine of some sort to the world. Many parts of the world are receiving little or no vaccine at this point, and it's incredibly inequitable. But it's not just a question of equity, it's also self-interest. The more viruses circulating in the world, the more likely we are to see new variants arise, some of which could pose a larger threat even to those who've already received vaccine. So this vaccine is an important part of the world's story. And I think we need to have a good assessment of it before we decide that it's not the one that we're going to use. I mean, I think Eric, there several very important issues that you've raised. I think global equity and vaccine distribution is really important because it's the right thing to do. It also benefits all of us. And as we look at the rollout in the U.S., we need to be thinking about the rollout globally and how are we as a global community ensuring that those at highest risk for complications are getting access to vaccine and vaccination. Where the CHADOX vaccine fits in will require proper discussion when all the information is available, including 
the nature and rate of the side effect, as well as the efficacy against variants. A variety of factors will have to be weighed globally, but we need as many tools as possible to turn the tide on transmission, and we need to turn the tide on this globally. Part of what will hopefully be in our discussion, because this reminds me of a discussion 25 years ago with rotavirus and its vaccine development, and how we as a community weighed the issues of interception versus activity against severe rotaviral diarrhea and morbidity and mortality in little ones. And I think we have to look very carefully about risk-benefit ratios as we understand the burden of infection, the severity of infection, and the risks associated with the vaccines because there is no medicine that we use that doesn't have a risk of anaphylaxis or some other risk. And we're always weighing that against the benefit. And I think this will need to be part of the conversation as we all as a global community weigh where this and other vaccines fit into the response. Yeah, let's just take a minute to discuss that example you brought up of the rotavirus vaccine. The early rotavirus vaccines were introduced to help prevent disease, which is very common in infants and lethal in infants in the developing world, although more of an annoyance in countries that have good access to healthcare. It did fine in its original trials and very comparable to the vaccines we're looking at here. But as it was introduced, it became clear that a complication into susception was occurring in a small number of infants. Then came the difficult question. Intussusception, especially in areas with poor healthcare, is also a lethal complication, but it was relatively rare and this vaccine could save lives. So the same sort of balancing act had to be performed for the rotavirus vaccine as for the current vaccines. Will this vaccine save more lives by preventing COVID-19 or will it put people at risk? And to a great extent, that's a numbers game. And right now, we don't have the numbers to inform that decision. And as part of those numbers, as we learned with the rotavirus vaccine, that there may be aspects of how it's delivered and the timing of the vaccine delivery that might impact the development of the side effect. So that as we learn more about these side effects, we may determine ways to minimize their occurrence. And that gets to understanding the numbers, the facts, and then determining what's in the best interests of the public health and the health of the public. Today, we also published a letter describing a case of thrombotic thrombocytopenia that occurred after the administration of a different vaccine, the AD26-CoV2-S vaccine from Johnson & Johnson. What happened in that case? This was a case of a 48-year-old woman who presented with malaise and abdominal pain and was found to have marked thrombocytopenia that had begun about 14 days after receiving the vaccine. On looking more carefully, she was found to have both splanchnic vein and right transverse and straight sinus thrombosis. She was treated with heparin, but her thrombosis worsened and she developed a hemorrhagic stroke. And as of now, she still remains critically ill. After hearing about the cases with the AstraZeneca vaccines, her physicians investigated further and found that like the cases that were seen with the AstraZeneca vaccine, she
she had strongly positive anti-platelet factor four antibodies. So at least in this individual seems to represent a similar syndrome. As a result, yesterday, the FDA and the CDC suggested that the administration of this Johnson Johnson vaccine be paused while this case and five similar cases are investigated. We don't have much information about those other cases at the moment, except that all were in young women. What kinds of investigations do you think are likely to occur? I think there are two big questions right now. One is looking at the individual cases. Do they all represent the same syndrome? And as you said, we have limited information, at least as of the time that we're recording this podcast. So we don't know that they all, for example, had anti-PF4 antibodies. They had the same HIT-like syndrome that was seen in this patient and in the AstraZeneca case series. So it'll be important to figure out whether this is one thing or a variety of different things. And then the second question is to get some idea of the rate. A widely quoted number right now is that there have been about 6 million doses of vaccine given out, and there have been six cases, so the rate is about one in a million. But there are still things we don't know. Are there other cases that have been missed? That's possible. This has been a fairly striking presentation, and there's been a lot more publicity, but it certainly could be the case that more individual cases will come out. But the second thing is, who is the risk population? If it's only young women getting this, then it will be important to figure out how many young women have received the vaccine so we can get an idea of the true denominator and get an idea of that number. And then what will those answers mean and how will they be used to set policy about vaccination? Again, I think there are two big questions to think through. The first is, is there an identifiable risk group? If this is truly confined to young women for this vaccine, then we can say, okay, for young women, this is not the right vaccine, but it might be fine for everyone else. And since we have alternatives, we could steer young women toward one of the two mRNA vaccines and still be able to use the vaccine supplies that have already been made and they're still being produced to vaccinate everyone else. If it's less simple to identify that risk group, it'll be a little more problematic to do such targeting. The second question, again, goes to the overall risk. Remember that this is going to be rare. How rare, though, is a really important question. Is it more rare for an individual than the risk of contracting and getting seriously ill or dying of COVID-19? I don't think we know those numbers yet. It's very likely, though, that this risk will be very small as compared to the current risk of COVID-19. But of course, that's a moving target for any individual in a particular risk group that's going to change. So I think there's going to be a lot of risk-benefit analysis that goes into this. Nothing that we do is risk-free. We're always weighing risk and benefit. In this case, the risk is very dramatic this syndrome that has resulted in some deaths and some critically ill people. It is true that now we know more and we know a bit, or we can make good guesses as to how to treat these people more effectively. Nevertheless, this is a serious illness and it remains a problem, even if our treatment is better. But the risk still is probably going to end up being very, very small, and we may be able to mitigate that with a little more targeting. And if that's the case, 
hopefully we can resume the use of this vaccine shortly, perhaps in a more targeted way, and we will be able to continue the very rapid pace of vaccination that's been going on in this country recently. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.